There are two kinds of giving in the Bible. One is systematic, structured, regular giving to the church as stated in 1 Corinthians 16. The second kind of giving is giving to the poor and needy. That's unstructured, unspecified and spontaneous and it is over and above the giving to the church. Beside these two things, the Bible knows nothing beyond giving to the church and to the needy. Those are the perspectives scriptures give to us. Let us explore what Jesus says about giving without hypocrisy. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. Look with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, a marvelous, exciting, and thrilling portion of scripture, one literally replete with spiritual truth, one setting a standard that is so high that none of us can attain it, <coughs> and yet all of us must and are able to, in the confidence, confident assurance of the present power of Jesus Christ, what the flesh cannot do. God's Spirit in us can do. The emphasis that our Lord makes is not some human approach. It's not some resolution, not some greet your teeth and try to do it. But what we offer to you is a divine, is a divine standard that in terms of human ability is unattainable. But by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, in the indwelling life of Christ, in his blessed Holy Spirit, becomes within the grasp of every believer. Jesus came into the world, and particularly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he set a standard that was unheard of to the people of his day. They had a religion, they thought it was biblical. It was at least sophisticated and certainly complex, but it was substandard. It didn't make it. Their theology was inadequate, that was clear from chapter 5. Their attitude towards mundane things is inadequate. That's clear from chapter 6, verses 19 and following. And their attitude towards their religious activity was inadequate. That's clear from chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. And that's where we are in our masters, in the Master's Manifesto. Jesus comes to the Pharisees and the scribes and those who adhere to the system of traditional religion passed down by the rabbis and says, in effect, you have emasculated the divine standard. You have torn it down and you have reconstituted a standard you can keep that is nothing but human. And so I am not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am come to reaffirm them. I am not come to set aside one thing of God's law. I am, I am come to reassert it. I am come to reestablish that which has always been established in God's mind. And so we saw in chapter 5 that he said, your theology is inadequate. You've got the wrong doctrine about hate, anger, murder, divorce, swearing, telling lies, taking oaths. You've even got the wrong theology of love. And he reestablished what God's view was. Later on, as I said in chapter 6 and verse 19, he tells them 
they have the wrong approach towards the things of this life. They shouldn't be anxious for what they eat or drink or wear. They have the wrong approach to theology and the wrong approach to things. But here in the middle section, verses 1 to 18, he tells them they have the wrong approach to worship. He says, the problem is your worship is phony. <clears throat> it's hypocritical. Look at verse 1. Take heed or beware that you do not your arms, your righteousness, your deeds of righteousness, your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. He says the problem with your religion is it's a show. And the word sin, sin here is theaomai, from which we get theatrical. And then in verse 2, he calls them hypocrites. And that's hypocrites or hypocrites in Greek. And you know what that means? An actor on stage. You are nothing but an actor on a stage doing what you do for the applause of the people who watch. Your religion is just as bad as your theology. And it picks out three elements of their religion to attack. One is their giving. Two is their praying. Three is their fasting. Their giving is the element of religion that deals with others. Their praying is the element of religion that deals with God. Their fasting is the element of religion that deals with themselves and the mortification of their flesh. So he really sums up the whole area of religious responsibility. Whatever it is that I am in my worship, it should be coming from the depths of a pure heart, not hypocrisy. Your giving is phony. Your praying is phony. Your fasting is phony, he says. And so he really unmasks their hypocrisy. What he's trying to do through all the Sermon on the Mount is to drive them to the realization that they're inadequate. They can't help themselves. They've missed the boat. They, are, they desperately need a savior. And of course, he will then offer them, offer himself to them. That's the same message he has for you. The world is full of religious people. And some of them are here in our churches or your churches <coughs> or even listening to this podcast. Religious people who are lost. Religious people whose religion is a sham, a masquerade, a facade. In dealing with this, the first element that he talks about is giving. And you will notice that he says in verse 1, take heed or beware that you do not your righteous deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thy alms, that is to do with giving, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you do your arms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Thine arm, that thine arms may be in secret, and thy father who seeth in secret shall reward thee. In other words, he says, now when it comes to your giving, it's hypocritical, but it ought not to be so. So he tells them, what the problem? What's the problem? And then he offers them the solution. 
Now, when you get into the area of giving, you really open up, at least in our day, a real kind of worms. I don't know if there's ever been, in fact, I'm sure there hasn't, a time in the history of the church when there's been a greater bombardment for our money for Christian causes than there is today. With all of the capacity of the airways of radio, television and media, email, direct mail, it's so hard for us to avoid being literally drowned in a sea of needs from many well-meaning Christian organizations. And just knowing how to give is very difficult. But we do know in the Bible there are two kinds of giving, basically two ways that giving is to go in terms of Christian giving. One is systematic, structured, regular giving to the church. We know the Bible teaches that. First Corinthians 16 tells us that we are, the, we are on the first day of the week to lay by and store as God has prospered us. And as you study that great depth in verse, in 1 Corinthians 16, you will see that the store there is the church and that the believing people are to weekly, every week, not just now and then or periodically or semi-annually or whatever, when you think about it, but we are every week to face the reality of the stewardship of money. And I believe that's why God wants us to do it every week. So that every week we again take stock of the level of stewardship as it relates to our funds. So 1 Corinthians 16 says, on the first day of the week, you lay by and store. That is systematic. It's structured as you purpose in your heart. But there's a second kind of giving. That's giving to the poor and needy. That's unstructured, unspecified and spontaneous. And it is over and above the giving to the church. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have that kind of giving where the needy person crosses your path and you are to reach out your heart to that individual. Now, beyond those two things, the Bible knows nothing about giving to the church and to the needy. Those are the perspectives Scripture gives us. Christians are now suspicious of teachings on giving and rightly in some cases but I hope you don't have that view I really think that giving has been an unpopular subject because it has been abused number one number two because people have the wrong understanding of what it's about you have to begin with this God doesn't need your money he doesn't need it gets along fine without it in fact do you realize that god got along throughout all eternity before he ever made you without your money that's right do you know that god ran the whole universe before there were any people in it he didn't cost him a cobble god can do anything he wants he doesn't need money from you he doesn't need a penny or a cent so don't think you've done him a big favor that isn't the point. The point in giving is not that God is up there saying, you know, Tunde, check the bank book. I mean, can we advance the kingdom according to the plan this week? God is not in that. He's not doing it that way. God is not at the mercy of us. 
So you want to know from the very beginning, God does not need your money. Now, the thing you must realize is that you need to give it. That's all. You need to give it. Paul essentially said that the Philippians, to the Philippians, when he said, I thank you for your offering. I didn't need it, but you needed to give it because when you gave it, you put yourself within the framework of God's blessing. Giving is all about getting. Giving is all about being blessed. God says, release it that I may multiply it to your account. It's the blessing that is the issue. There is a cycle of blessing and maybe I could illustrate it with a couple of scriptures. First, and there are many, but first would be Proverbs 11 verse 25. The liberal soul shall be made fat and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. There's a principle. The more you give, the more you get. You water, you get watered. The next verse, he applies it to withholding grain. If a farmer withholds grain and never sows the seed in the ground or never sells the grain to get the money to buy the seed to plant again, he'll starve to death. That is a cycle. You grow the grain, you sell the grain, you get money. With the money, you buy the seed. You plant the seed, you grow the grain, you sell the grain, you get money, you buy the seed. You plant and then around and around and around. And the whole thing depends upon your faithfulness to sow the seed. As you scatter resources, do you realize a farmer takes everything he has and throws it, in, throws it into the dirt? and operates on faith that God will give him a return. God gives him a return, and that's the cycle. That's the illustration. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Then, backing up to verse 24, is the point. There is he that scatters and increases, and he that withholds more than is fitting, and it leads to poverty. In other words, as you give, God blesses. And when God blesses you, out of your giving, out of his blessing, you give again. I give, God blesses. Out of the blessing, I give again. And the cycle of blessing goes like that. Now, if you step out of that cycle or that circle of blessing and don't give, there's nothing for which God is to bless you. There's no return and it just keeps tending to poverty. Pretty soon, you're out of resources. The principle is all given. Is not just talking about monetary things. The principle in all giving is not just talking about monetary things, but the whole of spiritual blessedness. The principle of giving is this. You need to give because it puts you in a cycle, in a circle of blessing. And what you give, God blesses. And when he returns the blessing, out of the blessing he returns, you give again. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 10, we read, And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks with the Lord thy God, with a tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give into the Lord, or unto the Lord thy God, according as the Lord thy God has blessed thee. Now here you are picking up the cycle. 
the Lord thy God has blessed thee. So out of his blessing you give. And as you give, he in turn will bless. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. And so there is the cycle. You give, God blesses, out of his blessing, you give again. There's only one way to live, people, God says, and that is to give. Because you put yourself in a flow of God's blessing. The New Testament expands this simple principle by giving us some very simple categorical statements relative to giving. And I'm going to run them by you quick and I want to move to our text. But let me give you just eight principles to remember in your giving. Eight simple principles that will help you give in a non-hypocritical way. Eight principles. Number one, giving is investing with God. All right? Giving is investing with God. And that's what I've been saying. It puts you in a cycle of blessing. Luke 6.38 tells us, Give and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. When God gives, you can shake his box and he'll come running over. 2 Corinthians 9 says, If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. God does not need your money, but you need to invest with him to get it into the to get into the flow of his blessedness. You want to reach life? That's the way to do it. Secondly, giving is sacrificial. If there isn't a sacrifice involved, it's questioned whether you're giving you are even giving at all unless there is some sacrifice. David said, I will not give that which costs me nothing. Third principle, giving is not related to how much you have. If I had more, people say if I had more, I'd give more. I'm waiting till my sheep comes in, then the Lord will hear from me. Your sheep won't make any difference. In fact, You'll probably get on your ship and sail away and indulge yourself like you've always done. Luke 16.10 says, He that is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And he that is unjust in little will be unjust in much. It isn't going to change your character to have more. You must learn when you have a little. Fourthly, it correlates with spiritual riches. In other words, if you are not faithful in what you do with money, God's not going to give you the true riches. It says in Luke 16, 11 to 12, If you are not faithful over money, the unrighteous mammon, then who is going to give you true riches? What are true riches? Souls, people, ministry. And God is not about to give a strategic ministry to someone who can't handle money. There are many men who never made it through seminary or through Bible school because they couldn't handle money and the Lord didn't want them in his ministry. Number five, giving is to be personally determined. Personally determined. As every man purposes in his heart, 2 Corinthians 9 says, so let him give. Verse 7, in other words, whatever 
you purpose in your heart to give. That's between you and God. The Macedonians gave abundantly out of their deep poverty. The Philippians gave because they chose to give out of their heart of love. Number six, we are to give in response to need. We are to be sensitive and to listen to needs. In Acts 4 and Acts 5, the early church shared its resources because there were people who had need. Paul went all through Asia Minor, collecting money from the Gentile churches to give to the saints in Jerusalem because there was a need. Number seven, giving demonstrates love, not law. You are not under any law to give. There is no New Testament law to give in a sense of an amount of a fixed sum. We are not giving to please some legal system. It is an act of love that we give. That's why it is to be cheerful, not grudging, and not of necessity. It's not a law. It's an act of love. These simple principles, invest in God, make it sacrificial. Remember, it's not a matter of how much you have. God will give you real riches. And he sees how you, when he sees how you handle money, it is to be personally determined. It is to be in response to need. It is to demonstrate law, love and not law. And make it sum up. I'll sum it up with number eight by saying all these things tell us that our giving is to be generous, generous. And the generosity with which you give will be determined by all of these other factors. How much do you want to invest with God? How much do you are you willing to sacrifice for him who sacrificed all for you? How much of the spiritual riches do you really want to be worthy of? How much of the need do you want to meet? How much love are you trying to demonstrate? So the point is this, and I'm hitting it from other ways. God is not saying give because I need your money. He's saying give because it's, it's a spiritual exercise that brings into your life the true blessing of God. Now, these principles cover our giving to the church and our giving to the needy. But let's go to the giving to the needy because that's text. That's the text we're studying. The Old Testament made it abundantly clear that the people of God were to give to the poor. In fact, in Leviticus 25.35, it tells people to give to the poor whether they are a sojourner or whether they are somebody who belongs to the land or in the land. In Deuteronomy 15, it says, if you come across a poor person, make sure you meet his needs. If he needs a place to stay, give him your house. Make sure his, his supply of food is met. Make sure all the necessities of his life are cared for. Because that is how people are to act when they name the name of God. You can read it in Psalms 41.1. You can read it in Proverbs 19. Proverbs 21, Proverbs 29, again and again and again. It says, when you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. Why? Because all giving is stepping into the cycle of blessing. All giving is investing in God. And part of our giving is to be directed to those who cross our path, who are in deep need. Deep need. So the Lord approaches this matter of giving because, obviously, the scribes and Pharisees and the people following them we are not living according to those kinds of principles.
They weren't giving to get into the cycle of God's blessing. They weren't giving selflessly. They weren't giving magnanimously out of a pure heart. They were giving to put on a show of piosity. And so the Lord directs his thoughts at that. Now, we had three points the last time. Let me just mention them, what we talked about. The first point was the practice of righteousness. And we said that the practice of righteousness is not to be before men. But God was saying, I have a standard for the practice of righteousness and you do not do it then. Do it before men. Point two, the peril of religion. And what is the peril of religion? We said it then, it is hypocrisy. Verse two, when you do your arms or when you do your supposed deed of righteousness, beware that you don't do it hypocritically. That's the peril of religion. Once a person has become a Christian, one thing that Satan loves to do is to shove them into the category of hypocrisy so that they really negate the validity of their witness and they lose their reward. The peril of religion, and we all face it, is that we could, we would play the hypocrite. Now, there are two ways to approach this. The hypocrite can be one who is not really a Christian, but pretends to be. And the hypocrite can be one who is a Christian, but is operating within the framework of his Christianity um, hypocritically. You can be a phony by being a non-Christian, pretending to be a Christian. And you can be a phony by pretending, by being a Christian who is carnal, but pretends to be spiritual. And both are really covered in the principles that Jesus gives here. Even though the first group is perhaps the scribes and Pharisees who are the hypocrites, it's also possible that the disciples just as well could have manifested hypocrisy in their lifestyle, even though they believed. So the message is for all of us. Now, the peril of religion is illustrated in alms. The word alms there is ilemusune, Greek word, from which we get the English word elimosinari, which means non-profit or charitable organization. It has to do with being charitable. Whatever funds you receive are for the giving to those in need. And so that's where that word comes from. The Greek verb is elidio, elio, E-L-E-O with a hyphen on top. And that is the most interesting verb. It means to have mercy upon, it means to have mercy upon the succor, to succor the afflicted, to give help to the wretched or to rescue the miserable. And I think it will be important to notice that elio is not a verb that speaks of an attitude. It's a verb that speaks of an act. There is no attitude without an act in this term. So there is not the feeling here of a longing to help the poor or a compassion or an empathy or a sympathy, but the very deed itself. So that, so that Elimu Sunni, giving of alms is the actual act itself. Not some weak sympathy with 
which carnal selfishness feels, but never does anything to help, and not some kind, not some false kindness, which really indulges one own, one's own flesh and consciousness, salving based on pride. And certainly not some silent passive piosity, which may be genuine at some point, but never acts in a tangible way. What he is talking about is an actual act of giving. So he's saying, when you do it, this is not the way to do it. It's kind of interesting. They use the word when. Not if, but when. Why? It is assumed that you would do this. Giving to people in need is an, is an assumption. How could we possibly say we are Christians and not do that? If you see your brother have need and you close up your compassion, then how dwells the love of God in you? In other words, your testimony is suspect. Your claim is questionable. James says, You tell me your faith is legitimate? I'll tell you this. Faith without works is dead. If somebody comes into your midst and is destitute and naked and you say to them, Brother, be warmed, be filled. You give them a lot of encouragement and you don't do anything to give them what they need? Your faith is questionable, says James. It's questionable. You see, when it's when because it is assumed that one with the heart of God dwelling within him is going to reach out to one in need for the heart is God for for the heart of God is towards the poor and the needy. The Bible tells us God is great in mercy, Ephesians 2 4. And if God is great in mercy, we who name the name of God would be merciful to others as well. Micah seven eighteen says he delights in mercy. According to John thirteen twenty nine, that little bag contained money because the disciples always carried them and it was to give money to the poor. That was the heart of Jesus because that was the heart of God. So it is when you do this. Now, the Pharisees were used to doing this. The scribes and the Jews, this was a long part of their heritage. They had always done this from the time they were in the land. They had always cared for the poor. They had always extended themselves to the needy. In fact, they had even twisted and perverted the significance of that to a place where it was way overstated as to its importance. Did you know that in the Apocrypha, for example, in Tobit, Chapter 12, verse 8, it says, It is good to do alms rather than treasure up gold for alms, deliver from the death, and this will purge away every sin. In the Torah, in the Talmud, almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings, is equal, and is equal to the whole law. Now, that's going a little far, isn't it? They believed you could get perfectly righteous by giving your money. But Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. It devastated their whole conception. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church picked this up. Leo the Great said this, by prayer we seek to appease God. By fasting we extinguish the lust of the flesh and by arms 
we redeem our sins. The Pope believes this as well. That's part of the system. They made it a saving element. And then they made it an element for piosity. They really put it on as a big display. And Jesus goes right by all that stuff on the outside and says, the only thing God cares about is your heart. Not what you did, but why you did it. Two people doing the same thing, giving money to a poor man. Why did they do it? Makes the difference. The attitude is everything. What is your attitude? Just examine your own heart. The way I examine mine. We all have our own little silver trumpets. Have you noticed? We do something for somebody in need and we say, I don't want to be hypocritical about this. I don't want to say anything, but inside, we can't wait till somebody brings it up so we can say, well, of course. The other day, I had the opportunity to be gracious unto another and we shoot the whole thing off and we all fight that kind of thing. We have our little trumpets. We want to let people know we gave. We go home to our wives and say, I've done this, I've done that. It's just that we want our little trumpet to sound. We don't want a big trumpet, just a little one. And then we get appeals from Christian organizations. If you give us money, we'll send you a certificate for your wall. That's a trombone. And then if you want a, a, big, a bigger one, you can get a plaque. You can just, the whole band in your office blowing all over the place. Those are our trumpets. We have our trumpets, just like the Pharisees had theirs. There are so many unbiblical approaches to motivate people to give today. It's just disgusting to our Lord and quite and I'm quite confident of that. Whatever you do, whether it's in reference to the church or the needy, don't blow a trumpet because that's hypocritical. You just give to the one you just give to the one in need. Now, can I give you a little caution? Make sure the one in need is really in need. Don't support healthy beggars, for instance. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, Make sure you understand what it says as I read. If a man can walk and doesn't walk, he's worse than anything. Don't support somebody who can. If he doesn't walk, he doesn't eat. You can support the poor by giving them work. You can support the poor by giving them some self-respect, by giving them something to do. There are some who are so destitute they can't walk. That's fine. Those need to be cared for. But be careful you make a distinction. Don't just indiscriminately and wastefully support healthy beggars. So there's a peril in religion, even in the area of giving. That we be hypocrites, just like the Pharisees. That leads me to the last point. We go from practice of righteousness to the peril of religion to the promise of reward. The point is this. How you do this area of giving 
is going to result in how you are rewarded. Some people get all hung up on rewards. They think that's kind of a crass motive. It doesn't have to be. God has established this and God is an absolutely holy God and he must have a holy reason for it. There are some things that deserve a reward and that's in God's mind true and that's the way he sets it up and so it's fine and if I read the Bible properly I'm going to make I'm going to take any reward that I would ever get and so will you and cast it at his feet in adoration and praise and I should seek to have that reward if for no other reason that I might show him my love in giving him all that I have Let's look at verse 1. Again, if you do your righteousness before men to be seen, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2. If you blow your trumpet and do your thing so that everyone can see, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now in verse 1, it says you have no reward. In verse 2, it says they have their reward. Now, do you do or don't you do? The point is simple. You have a reward in verse 2, but it's not from your Father who is in heaven. Who is it from? Well, who did you want it from? Who were you doing your thing for? For men, you get your reward. They saw it, that's it. The key is your Father who is in heaven. You get an earthly reward, not a heavenly one. You get something from men and nothing from God. You forfeit that. If you are an actor on a stage, if you are a hypocrite, if you are just doing your thing for the applause of men, what you get is the applause of men. That's it. And I want you to notice something interesting. They have their reward. The technical term there is a verb that means a commercial transaction. In fact, it is translated in um, one of the lexicons as to receive a full and give a rec receive in full and give a receipt for. In other words, if you do it for men, you are fully receipted. It is humanly receipted in full. You got your reward. You wanted to do it for men, you did it for men. They give you the reward that you wanted and that's it. But there is a reward for those who give it out of a right heart. Verse 3 tells about it. But when you do do when thou do arms, doest arms, sorry, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. People have wondered about that. It's a funny statement. Some believe it was a proverb of the time <coughs> of the time doing things so spontaneously that you didn't really think about them. And I agree. It is, it's as if you're walking along and the right hand was usually the active hand and most people being right-handed. You're walking along the streets and here's somebody with a need and without a long process of calculation, without a thought and analysis and checking out your bank account or bank book, here's a need and you just reach in and you slip it to the person. And your left hand, which is down on the other side, doesn't even know what's happening. That's the idea. It's spontaneous. It's free. It's uninhibited. It's based on compassion. And the mercy 
of the moment. Some people give to the needy and then they wait to see if the needy are grateful. And if the needy aren't grateful, they'll never do it again. If you give and somebody's ingratitude bothers you, you gave for the wrong reason. You gave for gratitude from men. If you didn't get that, you didn't even get that reward. And you'll get nothing from God. And so, giving is to be in secret. Verse 4. <clears throat> your arms should be in secret. Not even your left hand knows. In other words, not only do not people know, <clears throat> but there, there's a part of you that doesn't even know. It shouldn't be a settled account in your subconscious. It ought to be forgotten. You ought not to even be able to remember the last time you did that for someone. You shouldn't even remember it. Give it and forget it. That's indicting. Because we remember our good deeds. Don't forget, Lord, I did it. I hope it's in your books. We should forget. Let me tell you something. You do it and forget it and God will remember it and reward it. You do it and remember it and God will forget it and there will be no reward. Make your choice. You want it here and now you want it or you want it forever. You want the blessing of God or the applause of men. Don't keep mental books of your giving. And when you've done your best, when you've given more than anybody else ever gave or you've ever or you've ever gave and when you've stretched yourself sacrificially remember this we have done that which was our duty to do that's all that's the spirit of a humble heart and what happens at the end of verse 4 when you do your arms in secret your father who sees in secret will reward you The psalmist says, Whither shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, if I take my flight on the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, thou art there. He sees. That's Psalm 4629. God sees your heart. And so as you live your Christian life, beloved, make sure you're real. As you give, give God's way. Give to those in need give without a thought or a remembrance don't be a hypocrite and for some of you who don't even know the lord jesus christ but are faking it and that's the severest hypocrisy of all because that is unforgivable because unless you truly know jesus christ the sin of hypocrisy is on you forever trust that your faith in christ would be unfeigned faith and that those of us who are Christians would live as David did. David had a right heart in Psalm 57, 7. For he said this, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. An established heart. Is your heart that way? Do you give of a pure heart? Do you pray out of a pure heart? Do you fast out of a pure heart? If you don't, then you should echo the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. God bless you.
Father, we hear the echo of David's words. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward part. We hear the echo from 1 Samuel 16:7. God looks upon the heart. We hear the words of the Apostle Paul calling us to do the will of God from the heart. Lord, may our giving be that which is of the heart. May we never do our arms as the Pharisees and the scribes, either trying to buy our way into the kingdom or trying to place a spiritual game when really we are carnal. Help us to give in secret and know that you'll reward us rather than giving openly and receiving the useless empty rewards of men's applause. May our righteousness be before your eyes, not the eyes of others. For we know that in that we shall truly manifest and we are the sons of our Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.